we've had the trial before the Sanhedrin. We've had the trial before Pilate. And in Luke, we had the trial before Herod. And now Jesus heads off on the road to Golgotha. But first, we have a little side trip. Verse 16. Then the soldiers led him into the courtyard of the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, or the praetorium, literally. And they called together the whole cohort. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And after twisting some thorns into a crown, they put it on him. And they began saluting him, Hail, King of the Jews! They struck his head with a reed, spat upon him, and knelt down in homage to him. After mocking him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. Why? Why did they do this? I mean, we've, we've just discovered that the Jewish leadership are the bad guys. They brought the charges. They're trying to get rid of Jesus. Pilate has some little intellect here. He's realizing they're doing this because they're jealous of Jesus. He's depicted in a very positive sense, uh, somewhat in Mark, very unlike history's view of him. And then suddenly these soldiers are just mean and nasty. Making fun of him. Make a crown of thorns for him. Slap it with a reed. That hurt terribly. Drove it into the skin. Caused it to bleed. <coughs> and they, they, they mocked him. They saluted him. Hail king of the Jews. They went, knelt down in front of him. They put a purple robe on him. This is just mean and nasty. Why? Is, is this some Old Testament stuff that they're trying to quote or reference? Just a prove. Well, you see any reference to that here in Mark? Uh, he doesn't. <laughs> he doesn't say as Jeremiah said. <laughs> <laughs> as the prophets would have predicted. We're going to wait on the answer to that one to see what happens elsewhere. I think there was something in Psalms. Um, I, I oh, yeah, there, there are references, but there's no reference to it in Mark. So I don't want to go there yet. Let's see what Mark says. Remember, who's the bad guy here? Well, according to them, it's Jesus. No, no, no. Oh. Who, Jews. Jews, and especially in Mark, the Jewish authorities. The people, a little less so. Roman authority, Pilate, he's kind of almost like a pawn. And now these soldiers are just nasty as can be. Are they Jewish also? No, they're Romans. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's Part of the Praetorium. So that doesn't make sense. That's it does if you think about it for just a minute. Here are these soldiers. They're behaving nastily. Yes, sir. Behaving nastily. They're going to crucify Jesus. And they start out being just mean towards him. Keep that in mind. 
All right? They compelled, verse 21. They compelled. Can you dangle the answer? Yes, I'm dangling. I'm dangling. <laughs> Learned that from someone. He's moving on. They compelled. Well, I'm, certainly, I'm certainly just fascinated to find out what's going on. They compelled. <laughs> <laughs> Sarcasm. Oh, they compelled a passerby who was coming in from the country to carry his cross. It was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Well, that's interesting. Huh. Huh. Imagine Alexander and Rufus for all time memorialized by their dad being mentioned here and them getting mentioned with him. Hmm. Then they brought Jesus. Oh, by the way, just in case you're curious, there is a cemetery just in the Kidron Valley there in Jerusalem. Uh, a cemetery that was where they buried the Cyrenians who lived in Jerusalem or who were in Jerusalem for any length of time. And the Cyrenians located in Libya, northern Africa. It was the capital city there. A Greek uh, city became the Roman capital in the region. And there was a large Jewish population there, over 100,000 Jews during the days of Jesus. And they would make frequent trips to Israel, and they would have business there and family there, and they'd often come back to, to marry there and, and um, go to school there. And there was a cemetery for the Cyrenians there, and found in, found in that cemetery was an ossuary with bones in it still. And, and on the ossuary was written, Alexander, son of Simon. Hmm. And it's dated, about 58 to 64 A.D. Can't be much older than that because that was when the Civil War started and they wouldn't be burying anybody in 70. Not at that point. Um, not in the Kidron Valley when the Romans are gathered there. Uh, is that possibly the same Alexander? Possibly. Alexander is not a common name for Jews at that time and place in that location. Uh-huh. Son Alexander, son of, son of Simon, in that same basic area, at that same basic time, could possibly, possibly. Now, is it proof? Nah. But it is interesting that an uncommon Greek name like Alexander that you would find in Diaspora Judaism in Libya or in Asia Minor, but not in Jerusalem, would be found written on the side of an ossuary bone box in a Cyrenian cemetery dating to the late 50s or early 60s and on the box it says Alexander, son of Simon. Fascinating. Now if it said brother of Rufus, <laughs> but it doesn't. It doesn't. Oh, there's a Rufus mentioned in Romans, but it's probably not. There, no, my Bible says possibly the same Rufus. I doubt it. Right, but the Simon and the Alexander and the Rufus. Simon of Cyrene is mentioned in Acts. Yes, the Cyreneans are mentioned in Acts, and it's usually identified as being Simon. It's it's an interesting possibility. That just a little bit of history and, and archaeology that's thrown in there. It was Simon. There are several things here that aren't really. I mean, they don't really explain. Hmm. Why is Mark compassion to uh, help him carry the cross? Right, and they don't explain any of that. It doesn't. We don't know why it says 
the father of Alexander and Rufus. That's the, this is the only source for that. It's not Matthew, it's not Luke, certainly not John. So, I mean, it's, it, that's fascinating. It's one of those other little snippets. This Alexander and Rufus must have been two people known to Mark. Or known to, huh? It's kind of an effort to authenticate. I mean, Or known to Mark's source. Or known to the people who no, were hearing known to the Mark. People. I mean, that's fascinating. It's, it's almost as if perhaps in the church in Rome, and there was a Rufus in the church in Rome, but it's probably not the same Rufus. Still, it's fascinating. Then they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his clothes among them, casting lots to decide what each should take. It was not o'clock in the morning when they crucified him, Note that, by the way. How is that the third hour? Oh, from sunrise. Okay. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And the inscription would have been written on a plate called a titulus that would have been nailed to the top of the cross. In most depictions, you see the cross as a traditional the lowercase t. And the bar is written with the with the charge is written above it. It's more likely a little stand that sticks up above it, actually, because the cross is more in the shape of a capital T. All right. But that's and that, and it was common practice to do that. Usually, it had more information on it than just that. By the way, the charge gave the person's name and gave what they did. And it was written usually in the languages of the empire, the region of the empire, and the local native language. All right. But Mark tells us simply that it was written the king of the Jews. And with him, it's an interesting detail though that that's included. And with him, they crucified two bandits, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by derided him, shaking their heads and saying, Ah, you who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests, along with the scribes, were also mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others? He cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of the Israel, come down from the cross now so that we may see and believe. Interesting thought. Interesting thought. What if Jesus had actually done it? What if Jesus had come down off of the cross, called on a legions of angels and wiped out the Roman authorities and become the kind of Messiah that these Jewish leaders were expecting? Do you think they would have believed him? Yeah, they, would, they, they would have believed him, but yeah, that's what they were expecting. They would have believed him, but we would be in deep stuff. <laughs> we would not be saved. Deep caca? Yeah. Well, remember in the garden, he said, not my will, but your will. Well, what if the other will had been for 
Fascinating question, isn't it? I'm not so sure that their response would have been that they would really have believed. Because they themselves, the Jewish leaders, one of the reasons why the people of Israel were so ticked off at the Jewish leadership was because they were consorting with the Roman occupation. They were introducing all these Greek practices and Roman practices into the everyday life of the people. They were not being the kind of Jewish leaders that the people wanted them to be. And the people's expectation of the Messiah was to come in and throw out the Romans, throw out the Greek cultural influences, and throw out the Jewish leadership and set himself and his people up. I don't think they would have believed him if he had come down off the cross. That would have been cool to see. <laughs> <laughs> see Come down and kick deal. some ass, eh? <laughs> <laughs> and that's again. You know. Come on. Basically, they, they weren't out to find the truth. No. No, they're, they're out there mocking him amongst themselves, making fun of this, being facetious. I don't think they're being serious. Those who were crucified with him also taunted him. That's interesting. This is, again, this is, I believe, as I'm sure you will reveal to us at the appropriate time, kind of consistent with the Jewish image of the suffering Messiah as opposed to being killed. That wasn't quite part of the deal. Being taunted, being reviled, and all that stuff, wasn't it? Well, it was predicted of the suffering servant. servant. But you've got to remember, Jewish conceptions of messianic character were not the suffering servant imagery. They viewed themselves as being the suffering servants. As a people, they were the suffering servant. They didn't identify the Messiah with the suffering servant yeah. until after Jesus. And then it was the church that did it. The church looked at the suffering servant imagery in Isaiah and said, Aha! Here we go. Yeah, but this is being written after Jesus. Exactly. This, this is, is them trying to, trying to fit it into them. Mm -hmm. This is seeing in the death of Jesus on the cross, in his crucifixion, in the deriding of the people, in all that he went through, we are in fact seeing the fulfillment of the expectation for the suffering servant identified, localized in one person. In this case, it's a new understanding of the role of messiahship and what it means to be the suffering servant and the messiah. That was totally new in the church's interpretation of it, and extremely early, extremely fast, by the way. Not something that developed over a long period of time, but something that was fully formed within just a few years of the events. It didn't take them long to look back in Isaiah and realize that Jesus is their understanding of the suffering servant, and that that suffering servant and the Messiahship are one and the same which redefined the meaning of messiahship, by the way. Or rather, expanded the meaning. Yeah. Because it expanded it to include the suffering stage, which it did not have before. And still maintain the coming in glory to wipe out the armies of darkness and establish the kingdom of David in Jesus' return. I mean, that's where the Jewish understanding of messiahship still lives. In the second coming imagery. 
the addition of the suffering servant imagery to messiahship came in reflection upon the events of Christ dying and their attempt to understand, come to grips with what it was that happened. What the heck happened and why? And they saw in the death of Jesus their explanation for it, uh, defined by Isaiah and the Isaiah suffering servant passages. Uh, when it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, listen, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran, filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a stick, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. Then Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. No mean feat, by the way. <laughs> the curtain of the temple was described by Josephus as being 60 feet tall and four inches thick. And horses couldn't pull it apart like drapes. It was so heavy, so incredibly massive, made up of intertwined linen threads of red and blue and purple, hanging to separate off the Holy of Holies where the, where the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat would have sat from the court where the people could come and the priests would gather. And behind that curtain, the high priest would go to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat and make restitution for the sins of the people. And only the high priest could go there. And this curtain... A veil is one of the words that is often translated in one movie. It was this wispy little thing. And uh, four inch thick. Super, super heavy. 60 feet tall. Hanging. And it was torn from the top to the bottom. Not from the bottom up, but from the top to the bottom. Interesting theological statement here being made by Mark is that God in this event breaks the barrier between us and the source of redemption, the source of forgiveness, the source of salvation. Not us tearing it from the bottom up, but God from the top down breaks, pierces through, breaks, tears apart the barrier that was intended to protect us from the glory of God and the majesty of God and the wrath of God and the judgment of God. When Jesus dies here, and it's connected directly to that, when Jesus, then verse 37, then Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed, and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple 
was torn in two from top to bottom. And it doesn't say anything more than that. But the meaning, which we find explicated elsewhere in Scripture, <coughs> is, is unmistakable here. You can't miss it. For anybody who knows anything about the temple and anything about the Holy of Holies, for that to have happened, the imagery itself speaks volumes. So is this reported in other areas? What? Yes. Oh, what? Is it reported anywhere else? Josephus makes a reference to the to the occasion when the when the veil in the temple was torn. The veil. The the curtain. That would be the same thing. Yeah, it's the same thing. Yes. My translation says veil. Veil is the actual word. But human, uh, human, English understandings of the word often think of it as a very thin, wispy thing. Yeah. That ain't what it was. <clears throat> but there are references in Josephus to the event actually occurring at a point in time. He, he makes reference, kind of nebulous reference, to the time when the veil was rent from top to bottom. And of course they repaired it, but because <laughs> they, they still had 40 years to go <laughs> before the temple would be destroyed. So that sucker. Yeah, what? Well, I just, uh, you commented that some offhand comment I made sounded too modern, you know, for an interpretation. And this, this sounds like a modernist statement on Mark's part. It's just kind of there it by itself. It, doesn't it sits there without explanation. It does. It's, it, it follows immediately upon the death of Jesus. It is not explained. It's simply stated as having happened. And it's not in the same location as where all the other events, you know, it's not like they had a telephone. Somebody's in there watching the this temple. Is, this is on the Temple Mount, in the temple. The temple doors face the Kidron Valley. The crucifixion took place behind it. All right? So it's not as if someone who's standing out there in Golgotha could see the event take place. Just keep that in mind. The other thing that's interesting is you get the impression that it happened there at the same time that Jesus died. And it's just interesting that um, with what the taking down of the veil represents from what we understand it to mean and access now is through Christ to God. Uh -huh. He hadn't yet gone to present his blood no. to God at that point to have, and so it's interesting that it, if you place it, I don't know. It's just the interpretation for the event is articulated in Hebrews. And in there, the definition of when it occurred and how it occurred and why it occurred is brought out in Hebrews. Um, and Yet Mark doesn't explain any of that, but he does say that the event occurs, and he connects it to the death of Jesus. And I would say that, yeah, Jesus' death on the cross certainly makes provision for that. <laughs> he had to die for that then to happen. It sounds like it's something that probably happened. Well, now, Josephus... Whether, whether Mark picks it up and moves it into this... Mark writing in the late 60s, or maybe 70, but probably late 60s, knows the event took place. Josephus writing later 
notice the event took place. Um, Josephus' understanding of it, he doesn't give a theological interpretation of it. He didn't have one. It's one of the mysteries that, that precursor the destruction of the Second Temple for him. But um, uh, Mark doesn't give a definition of it either, but he says it took place, and he connects it to the death of Jesus. Fascinating. Let's, we'll, we'll look and see what Matthew does with this and what Luke does with it, too. Let's, you you kind of wonder how a full thick something rip. T tears it all. Yeah. I mean, well, it, that's called falling over. That's so called God. <laughs> it's hanging from above, from the ceiling. That's probably a pretty hard thing to do just by itself. Yeah, <laughs> get it up there. Wow, it'd be super heavy. But they managed it somehow. Um, let, let's let's finish this passage here, and then we'll talk about the mystery of the soldiers. There, there were. Uh, uh, yeah, that verse thirty-nine. Now. When the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was God's son. Or in the words of, of John Wayne, surely this was the son of God. That's true story. He played the centurion in the movie. All right. Notice. Centurion, one of those who would have been standing there mocking Jesus, part of the praetorium, part of the cohort, hail king of the Jews business. He's not changed his mind. He switched his position. This is in keeping with Mark in his general articulation of the Romans and the Gentiles as being somewhat more ready to hear the gospel than the Jews. Even those who crucified him, eventually, by seeing the events took place, eventually turned and changed their opinion. What would have been so remarkable about his last breath, though, that... Dying on the cross in this way. So fast. So quickly, yes. Oh, okay. So very quickly. Uh, you, you hung on the cross for days. And, and they normally broke, well, they broke the legs, too. To make them die quicker. Yeah. So Which I mean, they this. They did not do to him. They, no, 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 not at no, all. He's dead already. He's already died. So, that's that caught his attention, and as we will see in Matthew, it catches others' attention too, other soldiers' attention. Well, but in Mark, it catches the centurion's attention. He's a stand-in for all the soldiers who had been mocking him. Now they turn and say. Truly, this man was God's son, and which is, in a sense, an affirmation of faith. And that's sort of in keeping with Mark's general attitude that even those who crucified him, Pilate, who was the principal uh, political power responsible for enabling his death, the soldiers who did it, recognizing, not first of all, not wanting to do it, even those who, who were going to do it, who were having fun with it, ended up changing their attitude, their opinion about it. It's in keeping with Mark's desire to almost exonerate the Gentiles from the events and heaping responsibility on the Jewish leadership. Yes? What else took place when he had his last breath? Well, 
don't get ahead of this. We're going to go to Matthew now, next. I can tell you how come all that took place. Well, in Mark, it's not said. We're reading Mark. We're going to shift to Matthew in a minute. And in Matthew, there's more things that happen. But we're not there yet. Okay. We're reading Mark. I'll be you. <laughs> and also, hey, you're asking an important question. And there were one a of the lot things, of things that took place at that particular time, and it wasn't just the fact that God, that Jesus, made this statement that changed everybody's belief. All of a sudden, there was a, a multitude of things that happened at that particular moment when that and yes. boom, boom, and yeah, and not. Yes, my, and so, but and we're that not, got everybody's attention. We're not there yet. <laughs> Why didn't Mark say just, this? One of, the, one of the things that we've been doing is we've been allowing, as we've read, we've allowed each gospel to speak themselves speak for itself. without okay. injecting material from elsewhere or trying okay. to reduce the amount of material we inject okay. as we read. Because we're getting, we're getting ready to read Matthew, then we'll read Luke. We'll let them inject the material. <laughs> as of right now, we have the centurion seeing this event, seeing, and what it says is, saw that in this way he breathed his last. He said, truly this man was God's son. There's something in the death of Jesus, in the events that led up to it, that so impacted the centurion. He went from being one of the mockers, hail king of the Jews, to being a person of faith in a sense, or at least nascent faith, uh, the beginnings of it. Which included three hours of darkness, by the way. Yes. Even here in Mark, Mark, in the, yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. That's then, part of the process. But maybe the centurion was sleeping. We don't know what he was doing in that three hours. And we know that he didn't see the thing rip, right? Well, no one saw that. Didn't have got a telephone. Hat. <laughs> she said, talk to, no, talk to it's the ripping. Yeah. There wasn't ABC News sitting there with the camera on it. <laughs> CNN so what, Blitzer. What I mean, is uh, Mark expecting us? To, I mean, does he just want it to be a mystery? Why? Isn't he giving us a little bit more to go on? Mark has always been brief. He's been <laughs> just the facts, man. Just the facts. He, he, he's, he's Friday. He wants the basic information out there. And it's very brief. Yeah, uh, absolutely yeah. brief. We're not done, by the way. I want to get one more paragraph and, in. And aren't these letters, because if these are letters, that's, that would be the form. You would, if this was a novel or... Well, this is a gospel. Sort of gospel is not a letter. It is, it is a more extended, a letter would be much briefer even than this. Mark's, Mark is crafting a gospel. He's, he's crafting the story, and it's the basic framework story, the basic, uh, Jesus did this, 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 he healed here, he taught here, he died here. That's Mark's purpose. To get, as we talked about early on, to get down, if, if we believe what Papias tells us, to get down what Peter taught about the life of Jesus, Quickly after Peter's death. That's when Mark wrote this. Which would equate to mid-late 60s. Okay, let's finish the par paragraph here where I want to stop. There were also women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. These also, these used to follow him and provided for him when he was in Galilee. And there were many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem. 
So that sort of gives the identification of the source of this information. It's kind of one of the reasons why Mark would have included that, considering the first plea that it's women. And, you know, we're not talking queens here. We're talking Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Less. I mean, these are not super great women. They're followers of Jesus. And yet they are given special note here as watching, as seeing this, this occur, of watching this happen. Almost as if that was mentioned repeatedly that they are the source of the information here. It's as if Peter said, I wasn't there. I was running off hiding. But the women saw this happen. And then Mark wrote it down. Isn't that a whole lot like the, um, the Afro-Americans when the slave, they were enslaved, the women could get away with a bunch, and the guys would have been shot and whipped at the same thing? The women were not as highly scrutinized. No. They were a lot. Let's read Matthew's. We still do. <laughs> no, let's read, I wasn't supposed to that. So let's read Matthew's version of it. Well, can I just ask one question? Sure. The women here who are witnesses are... I mean, he makes the point that they're, they are at some distance. Yes. For the whole thing, right? I mean, not close enough, perhaps, to hear. Not in Mark. Right. Not in Mark. You're not going to go to Matthew without saying more about the soldiers, or I explained the soldiers. Kind of. Well, we're going to see, but you'll see a progression in Matthew that'll help to solidify what I just said about the soldiers. Are we going to see anything that tells us why Mark leaves the mystery of the centurion. We know why yes. that happened. Yes, yes, okay. yes. Okay. Yes. More to it. Yes, you will. Yes. Matthew 27, 27. Matthew 27, 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, the praetorium, and they gathered the whole cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting some thorns into a crown, they put it on his head. They put a reed in his right hand and knelt before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. After mocking him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him. And they led him away. To crucify him. Now, at first read, it sounds pretty much the same, doesn't it? But there are some interesting differences that I want to look at. Firstly, what color robe did they put on Jesus? Here they say scarlet. Mark had purple. Yeah, there you go. It depends who you read. Mark has purple. They say scarlet. Mark has the word porphyra. Porphyra. Here it is in English, here it is in Greek. It means purple. It's actually the root word from which we get our English word purple. Make that F hard. Becomes a P. Porpura. Purple. That's the root word from which we get our English word for purple. It means... Now you know, in English we got two kinds of purple. 
There's the bluish purple and the red purple. Purple is purple is purple is purple, but some purple is more purple than others, as the old joke goes. Well, well, porfura is actually more reddish purple in the distinction, which doesn't help us. I was hoping when I did the research, as I remembered there was something about that word that bothered me, and so I did the research thinking, well, maybe it, it's, this will help, no, it makes it worse. <laughs> this is reddish purple, but certainly purple, which is totally different color from Matthew's kakahinam, kakahinam, which literally means bright red. One of the translations, I, can't, I don't know which one it is, in Matthew, is put a purple cloak on him. Does? They say purple? That's bad. That is That's true. a very poor rendering. It <laughs> reflects the desire to, to fix one with the other. Uh, the, the utilization of the color scarlet or, yeah. or bright red is curious. It was red military. Yeah, that's my sense. It's the color of an officer, a centurion's cloak. Oh, that would make sense. They put on him. Yeah, this says red military. They put on him the centurion's own cloak, or more likely his cape, which would have been scarlet red. That color and its utilization, by the way, survives today in the color for the Roman Catholic Cardinals <laughs> who wear scarlet. <laughs> Nasty. But porfura means literally purple. Sort of reddish purple. The color of royalty. So, so where would they have gotten that's purple? That's a good question. I was going to say, if you think about the plants that were indigenous to that area at that time, um, if you boiled them, it would be a purplish red, it would not be a deep purple. Your common source for the purple at that time, I did a little research on it to double check on it, was murex shellfish, which a Jew would not wear because it was shellfish. It's unclean. So it's really being insult. But the person or persons who would have it, the most likely person who would have such a garment would be, of course, Pontius Pilate himself. Which is interesting because that kind of runs against Mark's depiction of, of, of Pilate as being really not wanting this all to happen and flogging Jesus kind of, you know, perfunctorily. And after flogging Jesus, he, you know, he handed him over to be crucified. But there seems to be an echo here that possibly what happened was, I mean, yeah, Mark is trying to clean up, clean up Pilate's act here a little bit. But he may have been a little more involved in the mocking than, than even Mark reflects. Uh, and, and if Mark is the one you follow, then it's probably Pilate's own robe. Whereas, if you believe Matthew's account, which actually is easier to see happen, 
that it was the own the own centurion who took his his cloak his 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 uh, cape and put it on Jesus, which would be more easily seen happen. The problem is is that it just as the color is derived from shellfish in the purple, the red is also derived in a very similar way. So, so, <laughs> so Matthew says scarlet red. Mark says purple. Both are colors of power. Both are colors of authority. All right? Both are colors of kingliness, majesty. So, in that sense, it's okay. Which which happened? I mean, if we want to make the question, which one happened historically? What color was it? I don't know. Uh, the more likely one would be uh, the centurion with the scarlet, but the earlier one is purple, which would belong to Pilate. That's curious. Or royalty. Well, he was the governor, and it means yeah. that he spoke in the, with the voice of the emperor. So when he would make a ruling, he would put on that robe. Um, interestingly enough, historians, when they look at this kind of thing, ask the simple question, which is the harder one to explain historically? The one that's harder to explain historically is the purple robe of Pilate, which might make you think maybe that's actually an indicator that that's the, what it was. Where was Herod during all this? He was having a party <laughs> there in Jerusalem. He, he was over in Luke. Yeah, he would have. He, he would have. Yeah, he's in Luke. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to him. <laughs> We've already gotten to him. Okay. Um, but Matthew's is an easier one to explain. And there are lots of scholars who say that if a robe was placed on Jesus, it probably was the centurion's robe. Got to be somebody who probably didn't care too much about their robe because this guy's just been flogged. He's, okay. he's, he's got to be a mess. He's been flogged. So you're, you're close. Well, yeah, which which reduces the likelihood that it was Pilate. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. if it was the Roman centurion, he probably didn't care. He probably thought it was cool. Battle. Maybe. Battle. Maybe honor. he wanted to collect some uh, trophy, and mm -hmm. Jesus' blood is a good trophy it to collect. Have made his, it would have made his cloak a very... Uh, profitable piece of garment. Well, later on, especially. <laughs> later on, especially. Yeah, very very sought-after piece. <laughs> okay. Um, notice they put a crown on his head, a crown of thorns on his head, and they put a, in Matthew they put a reed in his right hand, and then they take the reed and hit him in the head with it. Mark doesn't include that little detail of putting the reed in his hand. Other than that, it's pretty close. Even the word order is the same. And many of the word choices are the same, except for what color the garment was. As they went out, they came upon a man. Now notice, here they are being pretty nasty. The soldiers are being pretty nasty, just like they are in Mark. As they went out, they came upon a man from Cyrene named Simon. No reference to Alexander or Rufus. <laughs> they compelled this man to carry his cross. They compelled forced, not something he necessarily wanted to do. I compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, 
They offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. That's the same thing as myrrh, just a different term for it. And when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Well, that's interesting. In Mark, he just refused it. Matthew says he tastes it, but then doesn't drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his clothes among themselves by casting lots. Then they sat down and there sat down there and kept watch over him. Over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. That's a little more full and a little more accurate. Uh, with regard to what the titulus would have said because the titulus is supposed to identify who this is as well as the charge. You give the name of the person and the charge. Matthew gives both pieces. Then two bandits were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by derided him, shaking their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross now, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he wants to. For he said, I am God's Son. The bandits who were crucified with him also taunted him in the same way. That's kind of troubling. I mean, you're up there dying on the cross. And you're going to be taunting the guy who's dying with you? Especially the guy that could save you. Well, no. I don't think that would be. Over in Luke, we get to hear that one of them didn't, didn't taunt him at all. Yeah. But Mark and Matthew don't tell us that. Mark and Matthew just simply have them taunting him too. Huh. Which doesn't make sense that the guy who repented would have also been taunting him. No, he wasn't. Uh, Luke tells us that he wasn't taunting. He, he berated the other criminal. We'll get to Luke in a minute. But in Mark and Matthew, that, it, that part isn't referenced. Uh, Mark's source, which, is, which, which Matthew is following here, didn't hear the other criminal. Luke's source does. We'll come to that later. From now... You have to talk to the, you have to talk to the right women. <laughs> they were reading lips then. You know From noon on, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And about three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabbathani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then uh, when some of the bystanders heard it, they said, this man is calling for Elijah. At once, one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a stick and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait. Let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. <laughs> and other ancient authorities add, and another took a spear and pierced his side, and out came water and blood. 
That's other ancient authorities. Was that a footnote? It's in a footnote in my Bible. And it's also found referenced as one of the textual variants added to the text sometime in the 9th and 10th century. It's in the revised as well. The revised includes it in the body text or in the note? In the notes. In the notes. King James? It's not there? No. Interesting. Okay. Well, that's, that's an interesting textual variant that some ancient copies have, but the oldest and best don't have it, and apparently the King James lacks it too. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Um, verse 50. Then Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and breathed his last. Possibly gave up his spirit is another translation. Yeah, that's what it says here too. At, uh, that's more literal, actually. At that moment... The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. After his resurrection, note this verse 53, after his resurrection, they came out of the tombs and entered the holy city and appeared to many. That's often depicted as happening at the death of Jesus, that these people come out of the tombs and go wandering around Jerusalem. But no. Matthew says in verse 53, after his, Jesus' resurrection, they came out of the tombs and entered the holy city and appeared to many. There were resurrections as a result of his death and resurrection. This is among the things that happened that caught the attention of the centurion. They had the earthquake. You have the rocks being split. The tombs being opened doesn't seem like that actually happens until after his resurrection. Well, this Sounds like says, they had an earthquake. Yeah, they could have been well, opened. Well, 52 says that they opened at the time of the certain Yeah, but they the stay inside and but play they, Monopoly they, until... Yeah, that's right. <laughs> 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 that wouldn't be very impressive. <laughs> They're just hanging out waiting for the main event. A couple days later. Thank you. Waiting for the main event. If Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection from the dead. Now, yes, Lazarus had been raised, but that's a different kind of resurrection. If Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead then these saints can't have been raised until Jesus is raised. But the tombs are opened. They did put there, though, that they which slept or rose, which is a little misleading. So they just sat up. Which is I, a little yeah, this said that they were raised. They floated they just, up off the surface of the planet. <laughs> we don't really know. King James says the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints which slept arose. But if you continue so to float it around there too. Yeah, that's comma, 52. It, but there's a comma. I mean, there's no chapter and verse when they wrote it. So yeah. I suppose they say that and then continuing on, he says the rest. And on the and day of his resurrection, the they come out of the graves. They just woke up and then woke But you wouldn't know it then until. Yeah. But I mean, in, yeah. in the, they're pretty sure now that in the Jewish thing that they were, they were down below, right? And so then when they're coming up, it means that they. Ju oh, they were in Sheol. 
They were sleeping in Sheol when they were raised. You mean? Yeah. Yeah. That's the Jewish conception. Remember, Matthew was written in Jewish. Matthew was written by a Jewish Christian to Jewish Christians, both of whom have this rather nasty predilection against Jews. <laughs> Remember, the Jewish leadership and the Jewish authorities are the real bad guys here in Matthew. Pilate doesn't want to crucify Jesus. These Roman soldiers have been nasty. They're getting ready to turn the opposite direction, just like they did in Mark. But all these events happen. And, and you got to at least make some note that Mark missed this. Yeah, Mark missed this. As Luke does, and John. Nobody else mentions this. This is the resurrection of the saints in, in and around Jerusalem is an exclusive reference from Matthew, which is fascinating. Now, Matthew is sourced to the diaspora Jews who left Jerusalem in 70, after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. The Jewish Christian church, which evacuated Jerusalem when the Romans destroyed it and went to, to Antioch and to Damascus, those Jewish Christians reflect Christianity in Jerusalem up until the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 AD. So if anybody's going to know these events, remember them and have told them again and again and again, it's likely to be the church that's there up until 70. So that's an interesting point. And some of the people who saw it who are still around. Yeah. So they were, who were the ones raised? Possibly, or certainly those who experienced the encounters of the raised people were among those who are now living in Damascus or Antioch where this was written in 8085. Possibly, that's possible. We don't know, we, we do not know. There's a theological meaning here too, which may actually be more important than the question of the literal factors involved as when they came out and all that other stuff. We don't know. It's ambiguous at best. Don't you hate it when scripture's ambiguous? No. <laughs> After his, uh, verse, verse 54. Now, when the centurion and those with him, and those with him, not just the centurion. Now, Matthew's making clear it's the rest of the soldiers in the cohort who crucified Jesus. Now, when the centurion and those with him who were keeping watch over Jesus, who had just cast lots for his clothes, who had killed him, who put him on the cross, when the centurion and those with him who were keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were terrified and said, Truly this man was God's son. Matthew is clear. It's the entirety of the events. Mark implies it. Matthew's clear. It's the entirety of the events. And Matthew is clear that it's the whole cohort those who were involved in the actual crucifixion process. Hence, reflecting yet again this idea that even those nasty, dirty, sneaking, rotten Gentiles who killed Jesus, who actually did the dirty deed, end up turning. And 
You don't have that for the Jewish leadership. You don't have that at all. So again, we see an exoneration of Pontius Pilate, an exoneration of those who crucified Jesus, and uh, pointing a finger of blame at the Jewish authorities and in Matthew, the Jewish people. Let his blood be on our heads to our children and our children's children. Reflecting the animosity that existed between, between the Jewish Christian community and the Jews in the 80s. That animosity, still alive at that point, lifts up the nastiness of the event and the blame that was slapped onto the Jewish leadership and the Jewish people for the event. Another theological interpretation that can be drawn from this is um, if you understand that we all crucify Jesus, we all then turn and recognize and essentially repent. Essentially. Let's finish the sequence, the parallel with Mark. Verse 55. Many women, many women, were also there, looking on from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee and had provided for him. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Who is, by the way, who? What's her name? Salome. <laughs> so Matthew doesn't give her first name. I mean, uh, Mark doesn't give her first name. I mean, Mark, Mark gives her first name. Mark gives her first name. Matthew does not. Maybe he hadn't read Mark yet. Well, no, Matthew's using Mark as his source. Isn't that a tradition, though, to identify a woman by yes. sons? Yeah, by sons or by husbands. Um... Also, keep in mind, if John Mark is the author of Mark, and as I've argued that it is, and if Mark was using Peter as his source, and that's what I've argued, Peter would have known Salome, and John Mark would have known Salome. So it would have been logical for him to give her name, whereas the author of Matthew would have been more distant. Luke. Luke, chapter 23. We're not going there tonight. We're, not, we're, we're leaving Jesus on the cross dead in all three Gospels. Tonight. We're not going to bury him yet. Huh? <laughs> we're, we're going to make the next step next week. We got enough here. We, don't, we have enough here. <laughs> Luke 23. And because it's slightly different, I'm going to give us a little bit of a running start. Verse 24. So Pilate gave his verdict that their demand should be granted. He released the man they asked for, the one who had been put in prison for insurrection and murder, Barabbas. And he handed Jesus over as they wished. Keep in mind, remember... Luke gives the best depiction of Pontius Pilate possible. 
the most reluctant image of him in doing the crucifixion. He didn't want to do it. He tried not to do it. He argued with him about it. He said, no, I'll flog him instead. And he said it twice. Instead of crucifying him, I'll flog him instead, and that should be sufficient. No, we want him dead. Pilate is depicted in the most positive light imaginable beyond the historical references to him that we have in Josephus as being this bloodthirsty monster. All right? Keep that in mind. Notice what we're missing. In Mark and Matthew, we got the cohort doing all the business and, you know, hail king of the Jews and putting the crown of thorns on his head and slapping it with the reed and putting the robe on him and the color of the robe and all that stuff in Matthew and Mark. Not here. There's not even an, there's a hint of an attempt a little later. But right now, Mark doesn't even bother trying to make the guys who are doing it look bad. As they led him away, verse 26, as they led him away, they seized the man, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming from the country. No, no mention of Alexander or Rufus. Luke also leaves that out. Who was coming from the country, and they led, laid the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A great number of people followed him, and among them were women who were beating their breasts and wailing for him. But Jesus turned to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. He's going to preach a sermon. Just like when he was arrested in the garden in Luke, he preaches a sermon. Here he preaches a sermon, unique to Luke. Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For the days are surely coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do this when the wood is green, what will happen? when it is dry. It's, it's going to be really bad. You think it's bad now, ladies? It's going to get a lot worse. There's going to be a day in which you're going to say, blessed are those who have no kids. He's either talking about the end times or he's talking about the end times of Jerusalem. Ladies of Jerusalem, your city has 40 years and it's going to get destroyed. The days are surely coming, possibly within your lifetime, when this city is going to get wiped off the face of the map. And it'd be better if you had no kids. You're weeping now. You're going to weep then for sure. That doesn't sound real savior-like, does it? Really? No, it doesn't. I just want to make sure I was. Interesting. Yeah, very interesting. The, the interpretation of this paragraph, this, this sermon, it's interesting. can take you multiple directions. It sure can. It's just interesting he'd say that, you know, as he's going to, to die. die, that he'd stop, I mean, after all he's been through and not being able to carry his cross, yeah. and all of a sudden perk to life. And so, well, he had a second wind because he's not carrying the cross anymore. Well, it gives him an opportunity to turn and preach the sermon as he's not carrying the cross. Interesting. Two others also 
who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that is called the skull, notice Mark and Matthew both say Golgotha. They use the Aramaic word. Luke doesn't even bother. Remember, Mark is really close to the Hebrew source, to the Aramaic source. He often makes reference to the Aramaic and Hebrew words. Probably Peter did himself. Matthew, speaking to Jewish Christians as a Jewish Christian, uses the Hebrew roots. Luke, a Gentile, writing to Gentile Christians, frequently doesn't bother. This is an example. He doesn't say Golgotha, he just says the skull. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Okay, now, who has a bracket that begins verse 34? Anybody else have a bracket beginning verse 34? All right. What's going to follow here for this next little bit is found lacking in ancient authorities. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Uh, That's an addition. Now, the question becomes... Was it left out by mistake in earlier copies? Or was it added in in later copies? I tend to be, in terms of textual criticism, a textual critical purist who says that if it's not found in the oldest copies, you really have trouble including it. However, it's absolutely in character with Jesus that we can see elsewhere in Luke and elsewhere in the synoptics. It's also reflected in a Johannine depiction of Jesus. To, 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 to leave it out is extremely difficult. Are you saying it is referenced somewhere? Is this the only reference? Yes. In synoptics. It's not in John. It's the only reference in the synoptics. And when was it added in? What was the time period that it was first added? It's in the King James. It's in the King Jimmy, so that means it was added sometime before um, before the 10th century, but after the 4th. Let's take a look. What verse is this? 34. 34. This one has a footnote that says other ancient authorities omit this sentence. Correct. It's left out in the other ancient authorities. Which ones are they speaking of? That's what I'm finding out right now. All right. It is it is found in the original con- in the mm, It is found in the original text of Codex Sinaiticus. It is found in Alexandrinus, CDL, Psi, quite a few others, of course the majority text, which is why it's in the King Jimmy. It's lacking in Papyrus 75. There's a note in Alexandrian. Uh, there's a note in Sinaiticus that says this doesn't belong, and it's lacking in Vaticanus. 
So the ancient textual witness is actually mixed. It's found in the original of Sinaiticus, which dates to 350. But you said there's a note. But there's a note that says this doesn't belong. <laughs> when was the note put there? The note was put in later, of course. It's not the, it's a it's note that's not in the original corrector's hand. So the, author, the copyist of it didn't put the note in. It's somebody later. Vaticanus lacks it. P75 lacks it. Those are... Papyrus 75 is a very early, it's a very important papyrus of the New Testament, especially for Luke. But the textual witnesses are mixed. With Sinaiticus including it, Vaticanus lacking it. The argument could be made that it is in the original and got left out by mistake in Vaticanus and P75. And it was in the Alexander. And, it, and, it, and it's in Alexandrinus, and it's in uh, Sinaiticus. So, uh, and Alexandrinus dates to the 400s. So, uh, mm, you can make the the reason w mm, yeah the reason why it's here and in brackets is because the, the textual critics who who produced this the textual New Testament the, the uh, Novum Testamentum Graeci Nestle Alon 27th edition and are the same people who did the the New Revised Standard. They are the same people, and they they think that it's questionable. I agree it's questionable, but I think you can make a strong argument that it actually was in the autograph. What was in the date of the Papyrus 75? P75. P75 shows to, uh, strong affinities to Vaticanus. It and Vaticanus almost always agree. Why do they put the print on this so tiny? <laughs> Third century. Two hundreds. P75 dates to the two hundreds. Vaticanus dates to the three, mid three hundreds. But so does Sinaiticus. Alexandrinus dates to about 400 AD. So we have one from 350 and one from 400, both of which say it's there. One from the two hundreds, late two hundreds, and one from the mid three hundreds that say it's not there. It's an omission that's hard to explain. It's an omission that's extremely hard to explain. Yeah, it sure would be. Theologically, extremely hard to explain. So you think maybe somebody you know, going through this would have more logically added it? No. I think that it would have been, I think it would have, also the other factor involved, just a second. The other factor involved is the distribution of the manuscripts. The manuscripts that include it are distributed throughout the ancient world. They're found in all text types. They're found in, in the Alexandrian, Alexandrian text type, the Byzantine text type, the Western text type, the Caesarean text type, whereas the manuscripts that leave it out are only Alexandrian texts. That means that that it's more distributed across a broader range, which increases the likelihood it was in the autograph. Since it's found in all texts of the ancient New Testament, uh, whereas those that leave it out are only those that are Alexandrian in character, which, which is, which given the antiquity of Sinaiticus and that some Alexandrian texts included, 
Boy, that, I know that doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, textual criticism classifies manuscripts by families, where they come from. Manuscripts that come from Egypt are called Alexandrian. Manuscripts that come from the West, like Rome, are called Western. Manuscripts that come from Caesarea are called Caesarean. Manuscripts that come from Greece and Asia Minor are called Byzantine. So you have the entire ancient Christian world reflected in textual families. If you have all of the early generations of each one of those families witnessing to a text, the chances of it being authentic are pretty good. If you have only one early generation and only part of an early generation of one family leaving it out, then the chances of it not being authentic are less. You understand? If it's missing in some Byzantine, if it's missing in some Caesarean, if it's missing in some Western, if it's missing in some Alexandrian, or all Alexandrian, which is, happens in some cases, then the chances of it not being in the authentic originals is great. This is an example of where early Western, early Byzantine, early Caesarean, early Alexandrian all contain the variant. But there are some important early Alexandrian manuscripts that lack it. That gives some scholars real trouble. If all the Alexandrian manuscripts lacked it, then I would agree with them that it's not authentic, because those are the earliest. But since all of the earliest generations of all the text types, all the textual families include it, have at least one manuscript that includes it, including the Alexandrian text type in, in Sinaiticus, I'd say it's valid. That makes the NIV agree. I mean, they don't even. You had me really concerned because it's, it's in red, there's no brackets, there's nothing down here that says anything that explains it further, mm -hmm. that it, nobody you know, might not agree on, that, that people may not agree on. I mean, it's like, this is it, uh, this is uh -huh. what I know the textual families, that's, that's a really weird subject. It's textual studies. The oldest manuscripts of the New Testament are found distributed throughout the ancient world. Where they come from, also has an effect on their age. Those in the <coughs> West are not as old as those in Alexandria. Those in Greece are not as old as those in Alexandria. But even some of the oldest in Alexandria include the variant. That is telling to me. With its distribution being wide and with some of the earliest containing it, I'd say that it's authentic or more likely to be authentic than not. Also, it's very important theologically. Very important theologically. Why isn't it in the other two if it's that important theologically? Why did it get left out of... Okay, let's Why assume it's authentic. Why did Vaticanus and P75 and a few other manuscripts leave it out? Why did Mark and Matthew leave that's one Well, that's not, that's not the that's issue. That's not the question. It, it ain't there. It ain't there. We can't explain why it's not there. Why isn't it in Luke in the autograph? Well, why why would math why would why would the copy in Codex Vaticanus and P seventy five leave it out? Possible um, error on the part of a copyist who is familiar with Matthew and Luke. Read it without it. 
They crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And they cast lots to divide his clothing. If you leave it out, it reflects Matthew and Mark. Absolutely. So a scribe, knowing Matthew and Mark in this story, could possibly have, by mistake, as they're copying, paused to get a drink of water or something, turned back, started at the wrong spot, and knowing Matthew and Mark's rendition, left it out by mistake, not knowing they'd done it. That's possible. But the fact that it's not Matthew and Mark shouldn't impact the question of its validity in the autograph of Luke. There's lots of stuff in Luke that aren't in Matthew and Mark. Just like there's lots of stuff in Matthew that's not in Mark. And there's some stuff in Mark that's not in Matthew or Luke. I thought Luke embellished a lot. Luke embellishes by interpretation yeah. and expansion quite a bit. Yes. And that might be the Luke contains Luke contains the trial before Herod. Luke contains the two attempts to try to get the Jewish authorities to accept flogging rather than crucifixion. Whereas Mark and Matthew just mentioned that he got flogged. It's Luke that gives it the importance that it has, which is interesting. And it's debatable. I mean, I could make you a very strong argument that there's good reason for Luke being more authentic, more accurate than Matthew and Mark. But we're not going to talk about that yet. <laughs> Let's finish the reading, and then we'll discuss any more elements that we might have. I think that it's probable that the first part of verse 34 is authentic to the autograph. That Luke, in the original version that Luke wrote, that those words attested to Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing, is what he wrote. I think that is at least certainly a good strong possibility I'm not sure you can rate anything as being probable given the textual witnesses but I gave you my argument for including it and they cast lots to divide his clothing and the people stood by watching but the leaders scoffed at him the people stood by watching but the leaders scoffed at him saying he saved others let him save himself remember I said that the Luke tends to moderate to a degree the Jewish people's complicity. It's still there, but it's moderated compared to Matthew, especially compared to Matthew. It's closer to Mark's waiting. He saved others, but let him save himself if he is Messiah of God, his chosen one. Interestingly, Matthew expands far more greatly here. Now we get the soldiers. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. That's interesting. They don't do that in Mark and Matthew. Their mocking takes place ahead of time. Here, they're part of those who are gathered there mocking him. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews, straight out of Mark. Lacking Jesus. Huh? No robe. No colored robe. No crown of thorns. No reed. No business. They're such good guys. No, they're nasty. They kill me. But but 
by not talking about the gathering together at the praetorium and gathering around him, Luke effectively diminishes their evil character. Somewhat exonerates them to an extent. To, he has to tell the story. They're the ones who have to kill him. But he does, like with, like with Pilate, he uses the leaving out of that story to ameliorate the negativity that they have. Well, they must be the, a part of the they who are to be forgiven. I think so. <laughs> I would say absolutely. I would say absolutely. Everybody who's doing this doing. Even, it's one of the things I loved about the, uh, the movie, The Passion of the Christ. It's when he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. He's looking right at the chief priest. I think that's appropriate. Now, Matthew would never do that. But Luke does, essentially. I think Luke shows all, Jesus in the most positive light of all of them. Who? Luke here. Shows who? Jesus. Jesus? He's showing everything in, that Jesus is talking about here. Oh, yes. He's showing him, he's showing him compassion. He's showing him forgiveness. He's showing him all these little things that, that other people didn't, that Matthew and Mark didn't add. With the exception you know, of the Jewish leadership. Possibly. With, but the except, with the exception of the Jewish leadership, Luke depicts everybody in a more positive light. Mm -hmm. uh, Jesus, when he's talking to the daughter, like you said, was very interesting, fascinating. Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, weep for yourselves. That's not the best light for Jesus of the other two. That's he's more prophet-like. It's prophet-like in the Jewish conception of prophecy Woe is you. Don't be weeping yeah. for me now. You should be weeping for those who are going to come after you. Yeah. Who are going, you know, it'd be better for them not to have any kids at all because they're going to get wiped out. That doesn't sound real compassionate. No, but it's a good prophetic thing to say. <laughs> yes, it is. It's called tough love. Let's finish the reading here and then we'll talk a little more. Because I do want to at least finish the reading. Oh, yes. Um, one of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Jesus, then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he replied, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. So this conversation is going on up on the cross between them. So finally in Luke we have what Mark and Matthew missed this conversation between the other two who are being crucified and with Jesus. The conversation back and forth. In Mark, we have them deriding him. In Matthew, we have them deriding him. In Luke, we have one deriding him, and we actually see what the deriding said. If you are the Messiah, then save yourself and us. 
I mean, think about it. You're the Messiah. Messiah overthrows the occupation forces of Rome. That's his job. We're being crucified by the Romans. Save us too. I mean, that makes logical sense that one of them would actually be doing that. And the other one says, are you nuts? We deserve this. We're criminals. We're getting what we deserve. This man has done nothing wrong. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus' response is, today you will be with me in paradise. That's interesting. Yeah. First of all, well, it's interesting at multiple levels. It, it's a very... What, what's the word that's translated paradise? Luke 2343. I don't have any other translation on that one. <laughs> they were very sparse. <laughs> that's what I thought it was. Paradiso. <laughs> paradise. Even we could translate that one. Yes. <laughs> Paradiso. Paradise, which, literally. Which back then, I guess, what would that have been? It's the general, it's one of the general Greek terms for the afterlife. But in a Greco-Roman view of it, not in a Jewish view of it. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. So he's speaking his language to him? Well. He's speaking to his people. It's Luke utilizing imagery that a Greek person would comprehend in Jesus' words. Now, what Jesus actually said on the cross maybe have something different, maybe a Jewish set of, a different set of Hebrew words. He may not have said paradisio. In fact, we know he didn't say that. He said an Aramaic word. But what he said, we don't know. Because the concept doesn't exist in Judaism. Heaven exists. Sheol exists. The resurrection exists. But the concept of paradise is a Greek conception. Well, it's also interesting. Today, thou shalt be with me. That very day. So, I mean, he truly, he, he, you know, he died. It could be that he said in Aramaic, today you'll be with me in Sheol. Not Gehenna, mm -hmm. yeah. where that other jerk is going, <laughs> but Sheol, where I'm getting ready to go to preach to those saints who have died so that they can then come on up. Reflecting maybe Matthew a little bit, but that's a possibility. Sure. He may have also said kingdom. Elohim. He may have said, King, today you will be with me in my yeah. kingdom. After he said, in response to yeah. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Yeah. And he says, today you will be with me in my kingdom. I'm trying to think of what Aramaic words he might have actually spoken. Or even what about the today part? I mean, the day of the Lord. This day, which is what he says, this day, in era. Um... But I don't know what the Hebrew Hebrew word would have been. Wasn't uh, didn't <laughs> huh? Mel having read in the Passion? Wasn't he in Aramaic the whole time? Yeah, I'd have to listen to it, see what it says. Yeah, but that's that's probably an Aramaic translation of the Greek backwards. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably what it is. Um, 
He replied, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. So the shale makes more sense because it, he, he didn't go. I'm sorry, what? Well, the paradise doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't That he would either. have said that. And I, the kingdom doesn't make sense to me that he would have said does. that. But Sheol does. It's, it, you will be with me. If he's talking, yeah, being with me and also today. So I guess if you're, you know, going to take the. You can see why Luke used paradise. He's speaking to Gentiles. Right, so He's trying to communicate with them in terms that they would understand. Going backwards to what Jesus said is tough. Because there's no Sheol in... in, in not, there's in, no Sheol in, 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 Gentile, in Gentile terminology. Teaching. No. Hmm. He was kind of setting up the Nicene Creed. <laughs> You mean the uh, ecumenical version of the Apostles' Creed? He descended to the dead. <laughs> exactly. That 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 comes out of that comes out of the New Testament as well. Hmm. It was now about noon. Remember, the trial occurs in the early morning hours in Luke. In Luke, it occurs before sunup in Matthew, Mark. But in Luke, it occurs after sunup, in the early morning hours, uh, early sunlight hours. <sighs> it was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. That was placed first in Luke. Then Jesus, crying with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. He doesn't say that in Mark or Matthew, does he? No, he doesn't. Having said this, he breathed his last. When the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God. Talk about an exonerated view now of the Gentiles. He praised God and said... Certainly this man was innocent or righteous, depending on your translation. And when all the crowds who had gathered there for this spectacle saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. But all his acquaintances, including the women, whom Luke now does not name, who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Huh. Luke leaves out the identification of the women altogether. That's fascinating. That's really fascinating. Yeah, especially since he mentions they stood at a distance. He's being definitive enough to say these the women were there from Galilee and they stood at a distance. Yeah, but Matthew and Mark both say that, but at least Matthew and Mark name them. That's the point. I mean, why would he be so definitive about a distance and not Luke, name them? Does Luke um, recognize the significance of the women? Yes. And identifies the women as being those. Identifies Mary Magdalene along with Matthew, Mark, and John as being the first witness to the resurrection, as we will see. So, I mean, he's not afraid of giving women a critical, important role to play. He already has in Luke, but he's going to do it in the resurrection as well. 
But for some reason, he doesn't name them here, whereas Mark and Matthew do. Oh, the Jew, well, they are Jewish, so the Gentiles don't care what the names are. Isn't Possibly. Why would they care? But, but then why would, why would in the ne very next chapter he identify Mary Magdalene as one coming to find Jesus in the empty tomb? Wouldn't that be because she was the, the sinner that he forgave? Well, but oh, why not here? Since Mark and Matthew identify Mary Magdalene, he doesn't think why that, not Luke? Uh, he doesn't think the Gentiles needed it, obviously. It's interesting to see how Luke, using Mark, nevertheless, as before, seems to have no problem editing. Either for brevity's sake or to expand upon and reflect. He adds, he picks a Jesus who is much more in control of the situation. You, know, he's, yeah, you mentioned that before. He's preaching, yeah, he's right. forgiving. He's, well, he's preaching, yeah, that sermon. I hear hold my cross while I preach this sermon. Doesn't, doesn't Essentially, seem to be yeah. a lot of suffering. You know, not There's a, suffering, but it's for a purpose. There's suffering, but it's. You have to infer It's, it, it's incidental to the story. It's more. Jesus is going to die, but he has these things he has to do in the process, like preach to the women. And forgive, too, don't forgive. Yeah, forgive and forgive. Well, and say he has something to do and with others after he dies. Yeah, yeah, including this guy with whom he will be with. <laughs> in paradise, whatever right. that is. Or paradise, or Sheol, or whatever. Hmm. There's certainly nothing about God, my God, my God. No, there is no, yeah. there's no citation of, of the 22nd right. Psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Instead, it's, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. It's like, I'm ready. You know, yeah, so Jesus. I'm done under control. Here. You got it. Let's go. Well, it does say he gave up his spirit in the other ones. So that was kind of simple. Well, yeah, depending on your translation. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of St. Stephen United Methodist Church and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2010 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at St. Stephen United Methodist Church, 2520 Oates Drive, Mesquite, Texas, 75150. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.